Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Ooh, and happy weekend to you. Thank you for listening to The Ron Show, whether it be on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or if you like and subscribe to The Ron Show on whatever podcast platform you do. Hey, thanks for that as well. So uh, yesterday, I thought I was going to have a good five and a half minutes of fodder <laughs> to read from you, uh, read for you three apology letters from uh, those who took plea deals in Fulton County in the election conspiracy case, the movement, alleged movement, to alter the Georgia 2020 election results. And so it didn't take me five and a half minutes to read uh, three letters from Scott Hall, Kenneth Chesborough, and from Sidney Powell. It, it took about, I think, 90 seconds all total. In fact, Scott Hall, the, the, the bail bondsman, uh, the local bail bondsman, wrote an actual somewhat letter. It wasn't a very long letter, but it was more of a letter than the one-line statements that Chesborough and Sidney Powell wrote. Sidney Powell essentially wrote, I apologize for my actions in connection with the events in Coffee County. That was it. Chesborough wasn't much more specific. He just said, I apologize to the citizens of the state of Georgia and of Fulton County for my involvement in count 15 of the indictment. And those two were, by the way, written on <laughs> lined notebook paper. You know, the kind of stuff you would use in grade or high school. Yeah. In fact, I would surmise that somebody just handed them two sheets of notebook paper quickly before the judge gaveled in a session because uh, we, we do remember that those were some uh, 11th hour plea deals that got announced really quick before things got rolling in court those two days. Anyway, uh, there are a lot of folks who are not happy with these apology letters, even Scott Hall's long letter. Uh, the AJC uh, releasing a blog this morning Loaded with criticism from Democratic strategist Fred Hicks, who calls him a wink and a nod to election deniers, saying the letters have the feel of someone who is giving an apology with their fingers crossed behind their backs. To me, these serve to further entrench beliefs of a mass conspiracy. I mean, that was sort of my initial reaction yesterday as well. These don't really say a whole lot. They don't really sound much like apologies. They sound more like, I'm sorry, I got caught. Scott Hall wrote four paragraphs. He said, I owe you an apology. Telling the citizens of Georgia that. Although I certainly did not mean to violate any laws, he said, I now realize that I did and have accepted responsibility for my actions. The fourth person to take a plea deal was Jenna Ellis. I don't know if you remember when she gave her apology, but I'll let you reminisce over that. Thank you, Your Honor, for the opportunity to address the court. As an attorney who is also a Christian, I take my responsibilities as a lawyer very seriously, and I endeavor to be a person of sound moral and ethical character in all of my dealings. In the wake of the 2020 presidential election, I believed that challenging the results on behalf of President Trump should be pursued in a just and legal way. I endeavored to represent my client to the best of my ability. 
I relied on others, including lawyers with many more years of experience than I, to provide me with true and reliable information, especially since my role involved speaking to the media and to legislators in various states. What I did not do, but should have done, Your Honor, was to make sure that the facts the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. In the frenetic pace of attempting to raise challenges to the election in several states, including Georgia, I failed to do my due diligence. I believe in and I value election integrity. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. For those failures of mine, Your Honor, I have taken responsibility already before the Colorado Bar who censured me, and I now take responsibility before this court and apologize to the people of Georgia. Thank you. By the way, I don't know if you follow Jenna Ellis on Twitter or X or whatever you're calling it, whatever we're going to call it. She has uh, become persona non grata to the MAGA movement. It seems that she has thrown her weight behind Ron DeSantis. Not that that's helped much, but yeah, she's definitely off the Trump train for sure. And look, while we're on the subject of on or off the Trump train, Make no mistake about it. There's a lot of strife within the GOP. I want you to listen to what Paul Ryan had to say about the likes of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger when he was asked for his thoughts on them. How will history regard people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and people of that their ilk? Maybe it's just, just the two of them. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, they're friends of mine. I think they called out, look, Trump's not a conservative. He's an authoritarian narcissist. So I think they basically called him out for that. He's a populist authoritarian narcissist. So historically speaking, all of his tendencies are, you know, basically where narcissism takes him, which is whatever makes him popular, makes him feel good at any given moment. And he, and he doesn't think in, in, in classical liberal conservative terms, he thinks in, in an authoritarian way. And he's been able to get a, a, a big chunk of the Republican base to follow him because, you know, he's the culture warrior. And so I think Adam and Liz um, stepped out of the, the flow and called it out and, um, you know, paid for it, paid for it with their careers. But I think, again, back to my earlier point, I don't think you can be really very good at these jobs unless you're willing to lose these jobs. And there has to be some line, some principle that is so important to you that you're just not going to cross so that when you're brushing your teeth in the morning, you look at yourself in the mirror, you like what you see. Um, I think Adam and Liz are brushing their teeth liking what they see. On that point, I would argue that Paul Ryan can't possibly wake up in the mirror brushing his teeth and like what he sees. I mean, he didn't he didn't stand up to Donald Trump. He left. To give you a, a, a pop cultural analogy, he'd be like he'd be like that industrious old guy uh, from Jurassic Park. Remember John Hammond with the hat? Just so excited about how he's been able to create and corral the dinosaurs to serve his interest to create this theme park. <laughs> But as one of the first folks to hop on a helicopter or a plane to get the hell off the island when the dinosaurs escape their constraints, this this is this is the GOP's conundrum. They created Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene. They 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 created that mindset, the uncle that you go to holidays with who makes absolutely no sense, except he has learned everything he knows about politics from watching Fox News or listening to talk radio, and by God. He's been convinced that that's the only way to think, and everybody else is wrong, and you got to shout them down. I mean, that is Donald Trump in a that is Marjorie Taylor Greene in a nutshell. That is the MAGA movement, and Paul Ryan and 
Republicans who were in power before the ascendancy of Donald Trump enjoyed the fruits of that distortion and misinformation until it got out of control. And then Paul Ryan booked his ticket to get off that island as soon as he could so he could escape the wrath of the animal that he and his party could no longer control. Okay, so anyway, back to these apology letters that Fonnie Willis, she's a fan of these. She she has done this before. This isn't this isn't new. This isn't just to embarrass uh, MAGA tribesmen. This has been done before. She did this with the Atlanta public school scandal a few years ago. But but still, they they kind of missed the mark. And and you kind of wonder what the point of them is at all. I mean, I think she got what she wanted to get out of Scott Hall. I'm not I'm not so sure out of Chesborough or Sidney Powell based on these very curt apology. Although, they're not testimony, and we don't know what her office is getting from them behind the scenes. State Senator Jason Estevez. My eight-year-old has written better apologies for ta- uh, for talking during class. You'd expect a lawyer who tried to overturn an election to take it more seriously, but it's not surprising. Here, here. Not surprising. Not surprising at all. I, you, you never... You never get contrition out of conservatives. I mean, can you think of ever getting contrition out of conservatives? Like in modern times, have conservatives ever wanted to say, boy, uh, you know, we, we really screwed the pooch on that Iraq invasion. No. We're Americans. We don't apologize for nothing. Well, we really screwed the pooch when we agreed to let those 5,000 Taliban soldiers out of prison just before we tried to flee Iraq. No, we're Americans. We don't apologize for nothing. Well, we really screwed up all these military incursions over the last 150 years in uh, Central and South America. It's really destabilized so many countries down there, and now we're facing the repercussions at our southern border. No, we're Americans. We don't apologize for nothing. So I guess in hindsight, as surprised as I was at how short these apology letters, I'm using air quotes now because I'm not even sure they really were. Should I should I have been that surprised that they were much ado about nothing? <sighs> no, because I think that's it attracts. It's on brand. Cons- conservatives don't apologize when their long history of political miscalculations or marginalization to benefit their interests hurts or kills others. They they don't they don't apologize for that. They don't even want you to acknowledge history. They don't want to bury that history. Actually, don't go teaching school kids about things that went wrong in the past because they're really really scared that future generations of voters are going to connect the dots, put one and one together, and realize what it adds up to. It adds up to a long history of conservatism in this country making some huge mistakes or marginalizing folks, uh, causing harm to others so that a majority, a Eurocentric, a white male majority in this country, and make no mistake, white men have had the reins of power in this country from day one, briefly lost it for eight years, a a figurative blip on the American history radar, and lost their over it. Birth certificates, birtherism, and rolling smoke diesel trucks because to hell with clean air. But outside of that, it's been a white male run nation. Even when you look at the Civil War, I I point this out to folks all the time. Well, you know, 
Democrats ran the South up until just recently. The nineteen. Well, do you to point out to me at what point in time? Don't think of it from a, a blue red standpoint. Think of it from an L versus C, uh, liberal versus. When did liberals ever control the South? All the ills that we want to point to that the South suffers from, whether it be uh, you know educational shortcomings, cult- cultural woes, racism, yada yada yada. When did liberals control the South? To have any, but again, they're not going to apologize. We're Americans. We don't apologize for nothing. Okay. And if we're being honest, even the Adam Kinzingers and the Liz Cheneys, they weren't lining up to say anything ill about Donald Trump until well into the sunsetting of his one term. They're not stupid people, though. They knew in 2016 that a Donald Trump presidency was going to be disastrous, and yet they quietly let it happen. More on show after this. The America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show. Happy weekend to you. This is like, what, the next to the last weekend before presents start getting ripped open? Just pointing that out. I don't have a whole lot of shopping to do or money to do it with. So uh, <laughs> I don't have to worry about that too much. Uh, what I do have to worry about is the next calendar year as a realtor, a real estate agent. I'm going to give you two pivoting articles here. One from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Michael Cannell writing, uh, mortgage rates will likely drop in coming months. That is true. The Fed announcing they expect uh, three rate cuts next year, and we're already seeing bond sales uh, giving us uh, the opportunity to lower mortgage rates even now. They're in the sixes for those who are curious and have a good or great credit. We could see that go down even further in the first quarter of 2024. If you have questions, by the way, you don't have a real estate agent, residentially speaking, Hello, nice to meet you. My name is Ron, real estate agent, EXP Realty, Atlanta, Georgia, Metro Atlanta, North Georgia. Would love to help you with that. Ron at RonOnlyReal, R-E-A-L.com. Um, you can also call 404-919-2725. That is the uh, show phone number, and I'm, I'm happy to answer that for you. Ron at RonOnlyReal, R-E-A-L.com. Uh, anyway, Michael Cannell writes in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, mortgage rates likely to drop in coming months as the Federal Reserve eyes uh, interest rate cuts in 2024. But the shortage of affordable homes in Metro Atlanta will continue to bedevil the market, keeping many younger wannabe buyers from owning while pushing others ever farther from the city, according to analysis this week by a regional housing expert. And speaking of John Hunt, principal at Market Insight, that's an Atlanta-based firm that tracks housing throughout the Southeast U.S. John Hunt says scarce inventory, homes listed for sale, that's what that is, has been the result of long-running shortfall in construction, zoning constraints by municipalities and counties that limit more modest options, aka lower-income residents, and a lock-in effect. I call it rate prison. That would be where uh, sellers who don't want to give up their low interest rate that they either bought the home with during the post-pandemic or during the pandemic or those who refinanced their higher interest rate loans during the pandemic when, when rates were in the twos and threes. Anyway, that, that rate prison or lock-in effect he speaks of uh, keeps would-be sellers from putting their homes on the market. I mean, there's such a thing as an assumable loan. So if you have an assumable loan and you'd like to sell your house, uh, you can potentially sell your home with that low interest rate and entice more buyers. You can also purchase again, with rates going down in 2024, probably closer to what you originally purchased at beforehand and what was so bad about that, right? Uh, 
Um, home values are up 60% over 2019, so you were sitting on a boatload of equity, Hunt says. Sell those dang homes. <laughs> he said that speaking at the organization's regular conference. But wait, you've got to have a place to go. That's the problem. Article continues, about two-thirds of outstanding mortgages are at rates below 4%, while 90% are lower than 6%, according to Realtor.com. Few owners are anxious to sell their home, then have to take on a much more expensive mortgage. And as the article points out, the average rate for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage peaked at 7.79% in late October. Not set by the Federal Reserve, mortgage rates are affected by short-term borrowing rates that are Fed-determined. We're, uh, again, back under 7% right now. That expects to improve over the course of the 2024 calendar year. And then there's this, y'all. We also have something of a housing shortage because of a problem that Democratic lawmakers want to target. Hedge funds have gotten into the housing market big time. And Senator Jeff Merkley and Representative Adam Smith would like to ban that. We're talking about companies like BlackRock owning tens of thousands of homes throughout the U.S., when there was that rush to buy homes, a lot of the homes were bought by hedge funds. Right then and there, that caused competition and raised housing prices for everyone else who was trying to buy in that frenzy. Hedge funds, who just turn around and rent them three to five years, and then turn around and sell them at a huge profit, and of course in distressed condition, for that first-time home buyer to buy a wrecked property. Not wrecked, but not pristine, not in great shape, a property they got to put money into because three to five years of tenants... Tenants don't take as good a care of homes when they don't own them. It's just a fact as homeowners. So anyway, this uh, new bill uh, was introduced in Congress. It would essentially ban hedge funds and private equity firms from buying single-family homes. Here, here. I mean, the American dream is built on the backs of families buying homes. That is the number one driver of personal, familial, generational wealth in this country historically. Buying a home, passing it on to your kids who pass it on to their kids, your grandkids, et cetera, and so on. And even if they don't pass it on, the equity you build living in that home, 5, 10, 15, 20 years maybe, or longer, is huge. Tens, hundreds of thousands even, depending on where you live. That is generational, familial wealth. And by the way, I was talking to this really nice lady, senior citizen. She lives uh, in a transitioning neighborhood. The neighborhood is transitioning all around her. Her property taxes are going up. But her home value to her isn't all that different because she hasn't, she's, a, she's an older lady. She hasn't done improvements to the house. And her kids don't want the house, but she wants her kids to be able to benefit from the house. At, you know, financially speaking. Okay, good for her. She could be preyed upon by a house flipper who wants to come in and offer her rock bottom rate to then buy the house from her, flip it, sell it at an immense profit. Actually, as a real estate agent, can I just tell you, here in Metro Atlanta and throughout the country in a lot of metropolitan areas, there are companies that will work with you through your real estate agent to help you improve the house at no cost to you until you sell the house. That means you can get the improvements done, that kitchen reno that'll increase the value of your home by $50,000, uh, know, new flooring, all the bells and whistles to make it look brand new could net you $150,000, $200,000 more. There's a company, it's called Curbio, by the way, that will work with you through a real estate agent to help you improve that house so that you have more coming away when you sell that house than you would have if you just sold it rock bottom to a flipper. Again, 
ron at rononthereal.com or 404-919-2725 if you want to call me and ask me about that. I'm glad to help. But I want to get you back to this uh, bill that Senator Merkley and Congressman Adam Smith want to pass. Uh, the bill introduced in both the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives Thursday of last week, by the way, this was in vice.com, uh, would over a 10-year period require hedge funds and large institutional investors to completely divest from single-family home ownership. It's called the End Hedge Fund Control of American Homes Act. It would require large funds to sell off 10% of their homes each year over a decade. We shouldn't allow private equity firms to buy up vast quantities of American homes and create a generation of lifelong renters. Congress needs to act fast and help promote access to safe, affordable housing and home ownership for American families, not Wall Street. That's Adam Smith in a press release. The bill would also require, by the way, the IRS to tax large funds that failed to sell off their single-family homes over that time frame. It already has some support in the House, where it's co-sponsored by Representative DeCama Williams from Atlanta. Put a pin in that. We'll keep an eye on it. More Rancho after this on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Archived audio, blogs, social media links, and more, all in one place. Log on at ronshowatl.com. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Oh, Lord, yes, please check out that website. I just paid another $155 to have that up for another year. <laughs> have I mentioned, by the way, that I, I have yet to really monetize this show, and maybe that's just laziness on my part. It's not really laziness. I just don't have time. But if you would like, by the way, if you have a business or a product that you would like to promote on this show, one that you believe uh, aligns with the ideology of this show, because if, if it doesn't, it ain't my, my pillow. Don't need to. He don't need to call. What's the what's the the cell phone provider? The Liberty? No, no. But if you have a product or service that you believe aligns with the show, and you'd like for a, a, a like minded audience to know about your product or service, your business, by all means, Ron at RonShowATL.com is my email address. You as well can call 404-919-2725. Speaking of money, that $155 that I paid to GoDaddy to keep RonShowATL.com up for another year pales in comparison to the tab Rudy Giuliani has to pay. CBS News reporting about an hour ago, a federal jury on Friday ordered former New York City Mayor my, how the mighty have fallen. Uh, Rudy Giuliani has to pay a total of $148 million, they will not see a dime of this, to two former Georgia election workers who were at the center of baseless claims he spread in the wake of the 2020 presidential election. On the way out, by the way, of the courthouse, no regrets. Literally hollers that to the media, no regrets. Uh, the jury of eight Washington, D.C. residents deliberated for roughly 10 hours. Uh, from yesterday through today before reaching a decision. Jurors heard four days of emotional testimony in the civil trial, according to CBS News, against Giuliani, who served as former President Donald Trump's personal lawyer toward the end of his presidency. The case was brought by Ruby Freeman and Wandrea Arche, or Shea Moss, her daughter from here in Atlanta, who said Giuliani, uh, who sued Giuliani for falsely claiming they engaged in a fake ballot processing scheme while they served as election workers for Fulton County in the last presidential election. Um, let's see. Federal judge determined early in the year that Giuliani was liable for defaming the two. Here is how the award breaks down. $16,171,000 to Freeman in compensatory damages for defamation. $16,998,000 for Moss in compensatory damages for defamation. I don't know why she got more. It's like 800000 more. Hmm. $20 million each 
40 million total in compensatory damages for emotional distress and $75 million as well in punitive damages for both. Uh, the article goes on to say that Giuliani, whose net worth and assets are believed to be less than $50 million, remained defiant after the verdict was read in court. Speaking to reporters outside the courthouse, he said the threats the women received in the wake of the election were, quote, abominable and deplorable, but said he could still support, he could still support his baseless claims of voter fraud. He declined to comment further, citing his intent to appeal the judgment. By the way, I was noting on Twitter, somebody shared a photo of him leaving the courthouse today. (laughs) Somebody's holding up a sign behind him that says, find out. That is the second half of F.A., the F.O. F around, find out. Okay, speaking of election interference and confusion amongst the American electorate about the efficacy of our voting process, Uh, Associated Press released this information. A poll from the Associated Press and the NORC Center for Public Affairs Research found that 62% of adults say that democracy in the U.S. could be at risk depending on who wins the 2024 election. Get this, though. Majority Democrats, 72%. And Republicans, 55%. Feel the same way, but for different reasons. Uh, Reading on... President Joe Biden has attempted to paint a dystopian future if GOP frontrunner and former President Donald Trump returns to the White House after promising to seek retribution against opponents and declining to rule out that he would abuse the powers of the office. It's literally what he's saying. He's saying Trump wants to be a dictator. Trump wants to be. And you know how it started? He asked me a question. Please say you don't want to be a dictator. He said, no, I won't say that. I want to be a dictator for one day. It's not really a hard argument for President Joe Biden and his re-election staff to make that that dystopian future can definitely be a reality. The former president, according to the article, has tried to flip the narrative lately, saying the election subversion and documents cases against him show Biden has weaponized the federal government to prosecute a political opponent. He has called Biden, quote, the destroyer of American democracy. I think from the side of the left, it's pretty obvious that they're concerned about electing a president who is avowedly authoritarian, someone who clearly wants to reduce checks and balances within the government to strengthen the presidency and to do so in ways that give the executive branch kind of an unprecedented reach across the population and sectors of the government. That according to Michael Albertus, political science professor at the University of Chicago. From the right, the Republicans think about government overreach, big government threats to freedom, and mandates to act in a certain way or adopt certain policies. Against that backdrop, the poll found that about half of U.S. adults, 51%, say democracy is working, quote, not too well or not well at all. Can we just go back to the, to the, the fears on the right, by the way? They're worried about big government, not big business, when big business is clearly more involved in our personal lives and digging into our backgrounds and wanting our secrets. Threats to freedom and mandates to act in a certain way or adopt certain policies. Again, they worry about big government doing that, but their fight against wokeism, I'm using air quotes, they're not fighting big government over that, are they? They're fighting business over that. Now, we could argue the righteousness of wokeism I would 
not going to, I'm not going to argue the virtues. I, I, I don't understand the harm in being empathetic and compassionate to people of all shapes and stripes and backgrounds and ethnicities, genders, gender identities, sexual preferences. Don't see a problem with that. Oh boy. White male heterosexuals, however, they got problems, y'all. They don't like to be told that they need to be nice if they don't want to be nice to people that are different than them. Or, or, and this is this is where I got caught in a, a bit of a kerfuffle on an Elon Musk tweet of all things. God, I just, why do I even comment on his stuff? He is just ugh, poison. I wonder if those who adore him are aware that he's on the spectrum. And, and again, I'm not casting, I think to some extent, like, we're probably all on the spectrum in some way, shape, form, or fashion. But I'm just saying, like, that dude is not, he ain't right. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's just not sociably accepted. Like, he's not, he has no couth. He, he lacks couth. And lo and behold, a lot of folks that like Elon Musk, they as well lack couth. Yeah, I got in this whole kerfuffle about DEI because Elon Musk is not a fan of diversity equity and inclusion find me a born wealthy not remarkably intelligent white guy who is though (laughs) or any not marginally intelligent white guy there is a palpable fear in that subset of our population to a level playing field okay back to this article in the ap Uh, The poll asked about the importance of the coming presidential election for 12 issues and found that the percentage who said the outcomes will be very or extremely important to the future of democracy in the U.S., 67%, ranked behind only the economy at 75%. It was about equal to the percentage who said that about government spending, 67%, and immigration at 66%. Here, get this. Tony Motes, a retired firefighter who lives in Monroe, Georgia, 59-year-old Republican, cited a number of reasons he believes, quote, we're not living in a complete democracy. Okay, Tony, I'm going to clear the air on that here in just a minute. Uh, He says that includes what he sees as a deterioration of rights, including parental rights. Okay, that's aimed at school teachers, I'm guessing. Uh, Thieves and other criminals not being held accountable. Does that include the former president, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and... Jenna Ellis and Kenneth Chesborough, or no, doesn't does include them, Tony? Just wondering. And a lack of secure borders. Yep, 59-year-old Republican, who also said that uh, the various criminal cases being brought against Trump undermine the country's democratic traditions. But remember, he sees a deterioration with these and other criminals not being held accountable. <laughs> Tony Motes, Monroe, Georgia. Make it make sense. He says... They're trying to keep him from running because they know he's going to win. But he's worried about democracy. God. Oh, my gosh. By by the way, Tony Motes, former firefighter. That means former government. One of the cogs in government. Tony Motes, 59, Republican, Trump supporter. (laughs) You, you You can't make this stuff up. And he's worried about... The fact that we don't live in a true democracy. No, Tony, we don't live in a, t- a true democracy, sir. If we did, there never would have been a President George W. Bush. Uh-uh. In fact, 
his reelection is the only popular vote democracy win for Republicans since 1988. Yeah, that's not a true democracy we live in, Tony. You probably want to think about what a true democracy is, Tony Motes, Monroe, Georgia, former firefighter, former government employee, big government. Um, Because if you want a true democracy, hey, I'm all for that. All for that. Eliminate gerrymandering. Fair districts, fair maps. I mean, I'll even let you have the Senate. I mean, the Senate already baked in arbitrary lines. They give a obvious rural bent to the U.S. Senate. And even then, right now, Democrats seem to have the popular vote majority enough that the Senate, even the Senate with its rural bent, is right now in the hands of moderates, liberals, and progressives. Tony Motes, Monroe, Georgia, fearing that we don't have a true democracy. Tony Motes would hate a true democracy because Donald Trump never would have been president. Neither would George W. Bush. And without George W. Bush, we probably don't have Iraq war and we probably don't have trillions spent in Iraq and Afghanistan as a result. I mean, what could we have done with that kind of, I mean, we would have done it. We'd have just been hemming and hawing about more tax cuts and bloating our defense. Yeah, for sure. We'd have, we'd have found other ways to blow that. No doubt about it. Back to this AP article. Robert Lieberman, a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. Pinhead, I'm guessing. <laughs> That's what they call the learned folks. Pinhead. Liberal pinhead. Uh, anyway, Robert Lieberman has studied the fall of democracies elsewhere and the common elements that feed their demise. The factors include polarization, growing ethnic or racial antagonism, rising economic inequality, and a concentration of power under a country's executive office holder. Hmm. Who does that remind you? For a number of years now, the United States has had all four of these conditions, really for the first time in history, he said. So we're in a period that's ripe for challenges to democracy. Oh my gosh. And by the way, I don't know if you've seen the Netflix movie, Leave the World Behind yet. I see, I, I feel like I'm kind of alluding to the reason for what, what kind of drives the, the movie. Suffice to say, it's a polarizing movie. There are those who love it. There are those who don't. There are those who may have liked it until they realize that uh, the Obamas were, I think, producers. They were they partially funded the movie, and then they don't like it. But I mean, if you haven't seen it, see it for yourself. I I like that. I thought, it, in fact, it talks a lot about uh, the things that brought other countries down that uh, Professor Lieberman uh, discussed just there. And then you've got a movie coming out. Have you seen the theatrical trailer for Civil War yet? Whew. It's close to home, man. Uh, I will share, uh, I'll, I'll give you trailers to both those movies in case you haven't seen them. Uh, in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. It's, um, it's pretty eerie stuff. It's, it's, just, it's just amazing that you, you got folks like Robert Motes, that 59-year-old retired firefighter, former government employee, from Monroe, Georgia, who's hand-wringing. He's, he's fearful that we don't have a true democracy. And yet, if we did have a true democracy, Robert, 
this is this is just this is the disconnect. This is the intellectual disconnect. And I'm and I'm not trying to say he's stupid, but you fear not having a true democracy, and yet Donald Trump never would have been president if you lived in a true democracy, Robert. This is the disconnect that we're talking about. This is why we have the, the sort of discord on either sides of the aisle. We can both look at the blue sky and one size one side of the aisle says it's a beautiful blue sky. And the other one says, you're seeing blue? It's clearly red. Real quick, back to the article. The AP NORC poll found that 87% of Democrats and 54% of independents believe a second Trump term would negatively affect U.S. democracy. For Republicans, 82% believe democracy would be weakened by another Biden win, with 56% of independents agreeing. Independents are so wishy-washy. About 2 in 10 U.S. adults say democracy in the U.S. is already so seriously broken that it doesn't matter who wins the 2024 presidential election. Here's the capper. Relatively few in either party think U.S. democracy is resilient enough to withstand the outcome. More on show after this on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Final segment of the Ron Show for the week, and I'm just going to quickly pivot to a segment last night. Chris Hayes on MSNBC and the the alternate reality thing that I was just touching on, he really hits on this from the economic lens. Take a listen to this. But just take a second right now, okay? To consider what the alternate reality would be like in this moment after this turbulence under a Donald Trump presidency. My strong belief is that part of the reason that people's perception the economy was good in the Trump era, that Trump would be good at managing the economy, Mm. is that he constantly, unceasingly sledgehammered us over the head with propaganda about it day after day after day. The economy under his leadership was the greatest of all time. We have the best economy, greatest economy we've ever had. We're the greatest economy that we've ever had in the history of our country. We have the greatest economy anywhere in the world. We built the greatest economy in the history of the world. We have the greatest economy on earth, not even close. By the way, that that wasn't true, just to be clear. I mean, depending on how you even think of the metrics. But even worse, amidst the tumult, the scariest, toughest days of the pandemic, when Donald Trump was president, let's remember, okay? Didn't stop in 2019, he was president in 2020. During those worst dates, when we were staring down the barrel of a mass death event that was going to kill more than a million Americans, Donald Trump was focused on that economic propaganda, not even the economy, economic propaganda in that moment. I want you to take a time machine back to that Black Friday with me, March 13th, 2020, okay? It was the first week when it was clear to everyone the pandemic was here, it was very seriously And it was going to close everything down, massively disrupt all our lives across the globe. What did Donald Trump do that day? Donald Trump invited a bunch of CEOs of major companies to come to the White House to stand up at the podium with him in the Rose Garden for an hour and 15 minute press conference. He used the opportunity to tout all the ways that he and they in partnership were going to fight the pandemic and how these companies were going to help him. And the first one he called out was Google. I want to thank Google. Google is helping to develop a website. It's going to be very quickly done, unlike websites of the past, to determine whether a test is warranted and to facilitate testing at a nearby convenient location. Google has uh, 1,700 engineers working on this right now. They've made tremendous progress. 
Our overriding goal is to stop the spread of the virus and to help all Americans who have been impacted by this. Wow, that sounds incredible, this public-private partnership with one of the most uh, amazing American businesses, Google. It was completely bogus. It was totally fabricated. The whole thing invented out of thin air. The, the 1700 number, all of it. Not, they were not making a nationwide coronavirus testing website. They had no idea that Donald Trump was going to claim that it was. They had no idea what to say when reporters asked them. Just wholly fabricated. <laughs> And then the president called out every CEO by name, making the celebrities, as he referred to them, each say a few words to the gathered press. If I could, uh, some of these folks we know, they're celebrities in their own right. They're the biggest business people, the greatest retailers anywhere in the world. And one of them is Doug McMillan from Walmart. And I'd like to have Doug, if you would, say a few words. I'll just stay right over here. And Richard, if you could come up, please. Richard, please. Walgreens. Brian Cornell, Target. Stephen Rakowski, Quest Diagnostics. And Matt Sauce, please, of Roche. Matt, thank you, Matt. David Pierre of Signify. Signify Health. Adam Schechter, who's really been of tremendous help. LabCorp, please. Adam. Thomas Moriarty, CVS. We all know CVS. Again, this was like, it was, we were in the DEFCON portion of this. Like, it was coming, okay? That's what he's doing, this dog and pony show. That routine, combined with a long question and answer portion, took up enough time the CEOs were all trapped in the Rose Garden <laughs> through the closing bell of the stock market, which Trump knew. And that spectacle, oh, American business is coming together to make this all go away, it worked. It worked. This Potemkin village, this propaganda show, the markets went up. Donald Trump boasted of that achievement, get this, by signing a chart of the Dow that day and sending it to his buddy Lou Dobbs on Fox Business. <laughs> the president celebrating his uh, signature uh, day today. The White House sent along uh, to me a, uh, a, a signed chart of the skyrocketing Dow, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ. Uh, that uh, the, the Dow, by the way, rose more than a thousand points uh, from the time he started talking uh, to the time the news conference, his news conference was over with his decision of announcement to declare the coronavirus pandemic a national emergency. Uh -huh. Of course, it, it didn't mean anything in the long term. Nope. It was an utterly short-lived victory. The virus didn't go away. Yep. The next day, the markets were open over the weekend, right? Monday, March 16th, the Dow collapsed, suffering mm. its third worst day ever, of course, because guess what? The mass death event was still bearing down on us. So what we saw from Donald Trump in March 2020, the first time he was really tested as president, right? First real crisis showing up, he's got to deal with it, was the staged fake propaganda version of economic success amidst an impending mass death event. Yesterday we got was the real version. Joe Biden has had to deal from crisis, with crisis from day one. Donald Trump got to coast for the first few years, right? He got it. He, he had to deal with COVID and that's what he did. Joe Biden has had to deal with crisis from day one. day one. And yesterday, when Jay Powell went out there and said, wow, look where we are, all signs show that we have actually subsequently accomplished this incredibly difficult economic goal, and the markets went up. And the difference between how Donald Trump and Joe Biden handle those moments tells us something important about why we are where we are.
Never mind that Trump inherited Obama's economy, that the last three years of President Obama's economy, vastly superior than Trump's first three years, even before COVID is brought into the equation. By the way, the Dow closed today 56.8 points higher. So it wasn't just a temporary little snort of whatever you use for adrenaline. Chris Hayes essentially saying what I said about the economy earlier this week. When Republicans are in power, they give it a false lift. Oh, tax cuts. Okay, we get temporary boost, and then we got to deal with reality again. Under Democrats, the economy just performs well. Job growth continues. Unemployment drops. And somehow polling still shows that Americans trust Republicans with the economy more. It's confounding. All right, have a great weekend. Back here Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Show notes and more at RonShowATL.com. Have a good one.